From VinePair's New York City headquarters, this is End of Day Drinks, where we sit down with the movers and shakers in the beverage industry. So pour yourself a glass and listen along with us. Let's start the show. On this episode of End of Day Drinks, we're talking with Cake Bread co-owner Bruce Cake Bread and the winery's winemaker, Stephanie Jacobs. We're going to chat with the two of them about how Cake Bread promotes sustainability in the vineyard, the importance of the family's legacy to the brand, how Cake Bread makes wine specifically for food pairings, and how the brand is also embracing technological innovations when it comes to making its wines. And finally, we're going to discuss the surprising role worms, yes, worms, those creepy crawly critters play in the vineyard. Let's get to it. Hello, and welcome to VinePair's End of Day Drinks podcast. I'm Katie Brown, VinePair's Associate Editor, and I'm very excited to welcome Bruce Cakebread, co-owner of Cakebread Cellars in the Napa Valley, and Stephanie Jacob, Cakebread's Director of Winemaking. Welcome, guys. Hey, thank you. Hi. I'm also joined by my colleagues on VinePair's editorial team. That includes Kat Walensky, our Senior Editor, Joanna Sherino, Executive Editor, Tim McCurdy, our Staff Writer, Emma Cranston, assistant editor, and Keith Beavers, our tastings director. Welcome, everyone. Hey, everyone. How's it going? Hi. Good. Don't be proud today. That was so fun. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So thanks, everyone, for coming. This is obviously a a big group, and we're excited to all ask you our questions. So we'll try not to ask you all at once. (laughs) Um, But because I'm already talking, I'll go first. I've been curious to talk to you guys about sustainability because I know that Cake Bread is doing a lot to kind of promote sustainability in the vineyard. So I was wondering, what are some of the specific actions you're taking to support advancements in the vineyard and, and seller sustainability at Cake Bread? Yeah, so um, thanks for the question. And it's great being here. Stephanie and I are, are looking forward to this, uh, uh, going back and forth. Uh, what's interesting is, we do sustainability uh, not only in the vineyards, which is very important, but also at the winery too. And so kind of look at sustainability as a journey and it's not a destination. And so we learn through trial and error of different things we're doing. Uh, we learn from others and uh, we try and get other people to come and see what we're doing and add you know, ideas to it. Uh, as new technology comes on the line, you know, we're adopting to that. In the vineyards right now, I think uh, the main focus is really on soil health. And when I kind of say that, it's uh, the microbes in the soil because you get, um, uh, you know, carbon sequestration is uh, kind of critical these days. And it's um, people are trying to measure it. There's a lot of different uh, research articles about it, uh, not only just in vineyards, but just in agriculture in general. And so we're trying to really um, understand that area and what we can do to improve our kind of reduce our carbon footprint on that. Uh, Because to me, you know, you have, we take organic farming or biodynamic farming, all are good practices and they've been around forever and, you know, well-trialed. But I think today uh, you have to look at the carbon footprint. If you look through organic farming, biodynamic, they're not talking about that. We need to talk about that to help uh, have agriculture, vineyards included, uh, make an impact on climate change. And so, um, you know, whether it's cover cropping, no-till, composting, uh, all that uh, vermicompost is all how can you improve the soil health because the 
the soil microbes are also going to sequester carbon. And so we think this is important as well. So it's, it's an, that's where we're going today uh, to be able to move forward. You know, in the early days, it was making sure uh, you controlled your runoff. Uh, if it's hillside vineyards, really uh, control uh, and, you know, have no erosion control uh, or erosion, not erosion control, but having any erosion issues on hillside vineyards and the same now on valley floor vineyards. For example, and I think it's eight to 10 years ago, we participated in the Rutherford Dirt uh, program or uh, that helped set back the river in the Rutherford Reach uh, to allow it to meander the way it used to because as agriculture came in, everyone planted up to the river. So we wow. gave up about an acre of uh, ground there and now it's the confluence uh, between a, a secondary creek and the Napa River. And it's just amazing how that has helped change the river so you don't have as much sloughing in of banks, allows the fish to come upstream and have a place to rest where they have this uh, kind of confluence. So those are some of the things we're doing, but I think it's how we're measuring our carbon footprint in the soils is one of the big things coming up. That's crazy. Hi, Bruce, this is Keith. Um, you have, I don't know if this is true, but you seem, your family seems to be one of the most prolific vineyard buyers. You guys have so many vineyards and you pick them so carefully. And when you, over the years, as you've picked and you're, you're practicing sustainable, is that's a, it's a, it's a massive undertaking to make sure that all these vineyards are in this sustainable sort of realm. Um, is that a big, is that, is that a big feat or are you like, oh no, we got this? You, you know, it's kind of interesting because, um, you know, the Napa Valley Vintners started the Napa Green program, started out as Napa Green Land back in, um, I want to see the mid nineties. Uh, and so it's a really good program as a third party uh, certification uh, that was able to come out and inspect your property to make sure what you say you're doing, you're doing. And then it kind of gave you a five year uh, checkup on, you know, things that you needed to do to remain compliant. Then 2008, um, they started up the Napa Green Winery Program, which were the second ones to be involved in that. And that really looked at reducing inputs in terms of electricity or water, uh, yeah. all that kind of stuff, uh, increasing our recycling. And so uh, we did that. But if it's a mindset, it's it's um, it's not it's it makes it so that she's like, yeah, we can do this. And so it's more of a mindset to say, I'm, I'm going to change to make sure that we have all the properties up to speed. They're very fortunate because each of the different 16 properties are kind of unique and special. And so kind of being a family business, we had this kind of long-term responsibility, kind of a generational perspective. Sure. Of, you know, my brother and I to hand it off to the next generation. And so hopefully they'll look at us and kind of go, these guys did a good job and we're going to improve on what they've uh, passed down to us. And so that is kind of, how we look at it, but it is a, a generational um, perspective instead of what are we going to do this year? And so I think that really helps us uh, in that area. That's great. Hey, Bruce, this is Tim speaking. Uh, I've, Hi, Tim. I've got a quick follow up to that question as well and something I'm fascinated about because, you know, you guys have obviously been making Napa there in wine since winemaking was invented in Napa in, in the early 1970s, as we know. 
that's just a joke. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I get it. It's just like, come on, man, I'm not that old. <laughs> no, but I, I just wonder, like, how has that general, like, that generational idea of uh, of sustainability? How have how have you seen that develop over time in the region? And um, yeah, like the conversations that are being had, and and maybe even just a sort of loose uh, definition. How have you seen that evolve over time? Yeah, you know, with Napa Valley, um, it's a long-term um, uh, focus with the whole community. Because if you think back, 1968, uh, you know, the community voted in uh, the Ag Preserve. And so uh, this um, did, you know, prevented the, the lands from being uh, developed into uh, housing and uh, suburban expansion and so really kind of a, a long-term thought and if you kind of go back and look at the napa register uh some of the articles back then it's fascinating because not everybody was on board and it was you know a heated discussion about you know some of the long-term family owners saying hey wait a second i want to give you know my son or daughter a parcel of land so that they can build their house so they can live here and so there's a lot of different things about uh, that, but that helps set the stage, you know, and then we have, you know, um, the erosion control plan. So the county, uh, you know, you really have to design out and there's restrictions of where you can and can't plant. Uh, and so uh, when you come to Napa, you know, these are the rules that everyone plays with. And if you don't like it, it's no problem. You'll go over the hills to Sonoma. You know, you can go somewhere else and uh, do whatever you want. But uh, that was a joke. Uh, but uh, uh, just just to let you know. But uh, you know, this is this is the the you know the poker table that we're playing with. These are the house rules. And so if you accept those, then it's kind of like I want to stay within the house rules and be able to do that way. And so with the Ag Preserve, with the Erosion Control Plan, Winery Definition Ordinance, Napa Greenland, Napa Green Winery, all these programs are built up over time uh, to get everybody, the whole community, just not a few people. And that's where when you get the whole community or the whole industry going, that's where you can make a bigger impact. If it's just us, we're not going to move the dial. But if we can get um, as a collective, the whole industry or whole community to do this, uh, then it has more power behind it. You take our Napa Green Winery. We One of the easy ones is doing battery, battery, you know, like flashlight battery recycling. And so mm -hmm. it allowed the uh, employees to bring their batteries to, to the winery. And then we'd recycle it as one and say everyone kind of like, put it in their garage it's like yeah i'll get to it and maybe they don't and so that was changing behaviors bigger than just the winery footprint it impacted you know 60 other employee family homes and so that's how you kind of are able to kind of create a bigger footprint to try and move uh the dial and so um i kind of think that we have to do more than what we're doing today to uh change the uh, curve on our climate change challenges um, Bruce this is Joanna this kind of relates to that and to pushing the boundaries there um, on your site you mentioned that you regularly partner with UC Davis on innovative trials in the vineyard and also in the cellar could you tell us about some of those trials and what you've learned as a result yeah I'll, I'll, I'll talk about 
what Davis is doing, then I'll pitch it over to Stephanie and she can talk what she's doing in the winery. But over at UC Davis, uh, the Vintnology uh, Department has an amazing uh, neutral winery. It's like the first in the world as a research winery. You know, they're recycling all their water. They're, they're not, they're capturing their water. They're treating it, recycling it. And so uh, Dr. Roger Bolton, uh, who is... Uh, uh, my professor way back in 1977 oh. uh, wow. visited. This was, he yeah, this was a long, long time ago. So Roger, Australian guy, comes out and um, says, hey, Bruce, we want you to uh, sponsor these research fermenters. And so, you know, I know how much a fermenter costs. Like, yeah, no problem, Roger, count me into it. And then he goes, well, here's the price. This is like, Jesus, I could buy like 10 of these for you. You know, what, what do you need? And it turns out he goes, no, no, uh, actually, these are kind of automated. And then they have clean in place systems that you can take that wash water and recycle it. And so they're um, just changed from the current practices in the cellar. And so they asked 16 family wineries uh, in the state to each sponsor one of these. And the idea is to get them get the students coming out of there be able to think differently when they get into the industry. I think that's really important for us because we get someone who's working in a neutral winery, understanding how that works and they're valuable to us because, you know, here's how, what we've been doing for 40, 45 years. And so it's, it's impressive what UC Davis is doing. And uh, so we feel honored to kind of participate in that. And so I'll pass it over to Stephanie and let her finish up on that one. Well, we've taken the automated pump overs in-house and are starting to integrate them into our fermentation protocols so that we can have um, exact frequency and volume to pump over each tank. And where it's automated and controlled into a computer system so that you don't necessarily have to be moving pumps around, cleaning in between each pump, or even be at the winery if for whatever reason we have... Um, an extreme event or and need to be away from the winery for a little bit we can still keep making wine it's amazing what's how we've changed in a really positive way when we make changes i think it's you want to look at the win 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 out of them uh and and have be thoughtful when you make a change and how that and improve the wine quality and so that's one of the wins but if you take you know back in the 70s uh, my father bought a uh, field crusher. And so instead of bringing the fruit back in a gondola and doing that whole destemming at the winery, uh, they just pick in the lug boxes and dump it out in this tank and crusher that's driven by the, uh, the PTO on the tractor and stems would go back out the vineyard. We bring the fruit back as crushed grapes or musk and if it's white, we press it and if it's red, we put it in the tank. And to where today, um, you know, we're picking all at night so that we can bring in the fruit cold so we're not having to pay our utility company to chill down our juice that Mother Nature does for free for us. Nice. And then we get our trucks in off the highway so we don't have people sitting, uh, we don't have our fruit sitting uh, on the, the road waiting for it to come in the winery. And the bottom line is uh, cold fruit uh, makes just better wine. So mm. um, we think this is kind of, but that's kind of the change. Uh, that's kind of happening. What's exciting is, you know, Stephanie's been with us 18 or 19 years now, but uh, what makes, I think, what 
makes it fun to work with long-term employees that they're always looking for the next way to improve what we're doing. And so we're not trying to just sit on our hands, not to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but just take those incremental steps to be able to improve uh, and then adapt with, you know, our customer is getting, uh, you know, more savvy in terms of what they want from a wine and what we can measure and how we grow it is it's it's an exciting time to be uh, making wine. I feel like this is Keith again. I, I guess I don't know if this is even a question, but more of a comment. It just makes me it's just exciting to hear because of your absolute focus with your company in sustainability and not just in the vineyard, but practices around the vineyard. And at the same time, able to harness new technology to help you in a certain way to make a wine. And that technology is being used not to do anything negative to the earth or to the vine or to the people that you work with. But it's, it's, I just find it wonderful that you have this sort of like absolute natural way of seeing the vineyard and, and the people. And then at the same time, you have like an automated system. You could be just, I don't want to say chilling out somewhere on the phone using, but like, you know, it's a remote Stephanie, is that what you're doing? Just hanging out, just <laughs> yeah. looking at your phone yeah. and like uh, texting. And... I, I thought so. I thought Bridgerton. so. <laughs> that was just a comment. I don't know. I just find that amazing. Well, it's great because we have a great team that's kind of focused on this, you know, because you can't lone ranger this. You know, we have a Napa Green committee from all departments. Uh, you know, we taken uh, field trips, you know, over to Benzinger and see what they're doing with their biodynamic. Cool. I think we have a, a trip with the vineyard guys coming up in March, going out to look at a, a vermicompost uh, operation over in Sonoma. Uh, the most memorable is we went up to uh, Sierra Nevada Brewing up in Chico. It's about a two-hour bus ride, but we didn't look at so much the brewing um, aspect of the tour, but all their green practices and all their sustainability and it was so impressive. And I think that when we're coming back on the bus, it's like, man, we want to be like those guys. You know, everyone says, yeah. I want to be like Mike. It's like, we want to be like Sierra Nevada because they are doing uh, just an incredible amount. And uh, my son lives in Brooklyn. And so uh, we're going to, uh, let's see, Holly G's. And there's a, a, a little brew pub next door. And so I stopped in there as they're there a little bit early. And I asked him about Sierra Nevada. And so he just was able to say, here's all the sustainability practices. And so to get that to to uh, go from Chico, California, Northern California to Brooklyn, I was really impressed. And so that's that was pretty cool. Chico okay, okay, okay. Hold up. <laughs> Where in Brooklyn does your son live? He lives uh, uh, just outside of Bushwick. Oh. Okay. I used to and live so he's in the, near there. Yeah, so he's in the um, uh, music business. They have, uh, he works for a, band management company then this side gig with another guy is called a record label called exploding in sound so hmm. yeah That's so they just got a, a song uh what is it floaty uh come home with worms or um new song on npr which is pretty cool for them so that's, nice. that's my plug <laughs> yeah, nice um so i was i'm I guess, um, you know, you hear a lot about family. This is a family winery. Um, 
I guess I wanted to talk about, you know, the, fam- it's the family business. You know, I mean, you guys have been doing this as a family for a long time, right? I guess since the 70s, before that. And what's it like to, uh, to keep it? I mean, to be able to keep this in the family for as long as you guys had in the place that you make wine and watch it to evolve the way it evolved is pretty amazing. And it's really, I mean, you just talking about re, rerouting the, the river in Rutherford alone is incredible. So I guess I've just wanted to, you know, ask about, you know, the family business and, and, and how that has affected the winemaking throughout the years. Yeah. Um, so kind of our family DNA, it goes back to my grandfather because he started a, a garage in downtown Oakland, you know, changing oil uh, back in 1926. And so over the 50 years that they had that business, my grandfather, my father ran it. Uh, and then, um, uh, in 1973, uh, uh, my parents bought uh, the friends of my grandparents. Uh, they had 20 acres up in the middle of Napa, and so they wanted to retire. And we'd go up there during the summers and um, go up there to to, to Napa and kind of hang out. This is my grandparents would take the my three brothers uh, up there to kind of get us out of the out of this Oakland for a while. Mm. And so uh, we ended up buying it from them, but. Uh, our kind of how we look at things is, you know, my father, and my grandfather worked together. And then, you know, both my brother and I worked with our parents uh, until about 2002. We started doing succession planning. They stepped back and uh, my brother and I have been running it. And then in 2018, we're both in that process of stepping back. Uh, but this is kind of normal uh, way that how family and family uh, businesses go. Uh, I just was on a, um, a class out of Kellogg that does great family business work uh, for the kind of Zoom calls for, uh, I think, three days a week in February. But one of the things I learned, uh, they had a quote from Desmond Tutu, is that you don't choose your family. They're God's gift to you as you are to them. So if you take that to the next step and apply that to family and business, in a family business, you didn't get to choose your family and you don't get to choose your business partner. And so you're kind of in it all together and you have to work through because there's always going to be challenges uh, to kind of keep working through. I think our strengths uh, with my brothers and my parents is we've always had, here's the, the common goal. Here's the vision where we want to be but where each one of us brought something different to the table to get us on that path, to get us to the goal. So we're not all doing the same thing. We all had our different style and different way of doing it, but it wasn't that we'd end up in, uh, you know, on first base or third base, we all end up on second base. So uh, that I think has been really helpful. You know, we've gone through the founder or what they call one G to, what we are today is a sibling partnership. And then with the 3G or the cousins, now we're making this kind of transition to a, what they call cousin consortium. So the cousins are scattered all over the country, whereas you know Dennis and I live in the same town. Right. And so it takes a different way to communicate uh, and make sure that it's uh, transparent on what we're doing. When my brother and I were kind of older operators, you know, we'd kind of like grunt to each other walking through the hallway there. We knew what the guy was thinking or saying and it's like, yeah, yeah, okay, I got it. But 
we have to kind of slow down now as we bring the cousins in because uh, it's a different way to communicate. You know, each generation has their own way. Mm-hmm. And so we need to be able to, how do we make that blend going from the second generation to the third generation? So it's, uh, and each stage, each transition can be treacherous. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> we have a good uh, foundation of seeing our grandfather and father work and then right. what our parents did for Dennis and myself. Right. And so if we have, I have confidence that we've, we've been through this before and we know, we know what can happen. Sure. I think in family businesses, the worst thing is you get too comfortable and you're not pushing yourselves. And then, you know, life passes you by, the industry passes you by. So um, mm-hmm. you have to kind of be always thinking, how are we going to stay up with uh, and, you know, kind of get ahead? So, so Bruce, this is, uh, this is Tim speaking again. So one of the things that I wanted to ask here, again, ties into this, that idea of um, sort of consistency that you seem to be alluding towards and, and maintaining a style, a family style of wines, right, over time. And to my understanding, one of the things that is sort of continuous through cake bread is this idea of making um, wines that pair with food, you know, farm-to-table wines before anyone was even putting a hyphen between those words. Um, I just wonder if that's something you can kind of confirm. And then, Stephanie, if you can follow up by telling me, you know, what does that actually look like? What does that process mean from from a winemaking and kind of grape-growing standpoint? What are you thinking about when you're trying to craft a wine specifically for food? Yeah, so I'll start out as kind of the his history of us is you know, in the early days when we'd bottle, we'd bottle on Saturday morning and uh, parents would invite a bunch of friends up. We didn't have that much to bottle, so they'd finish about noon and then everyone would have lunch and kind of have a couple bottles of what they bottle. And so it kind of became standard of, we're going to Jack and Dolores' place for, for lunch. And then pretty soon all our good friends started showing up like at 1130 instead of eight to help bottle. And so they, they knew they're going to still get fed. And, but that was kind of the beginning of uh, understanding that, you know, best wine is the wine that's on their dinner table and just fits in. Mm-hmm. And so. It's one, one, that's a, this is Keith and that's, that's great. I love the fact that again, this is another comment. I don't, I don't really have questions here. But like I, I just I also think it's really great because Americans, you know, we don't always know understand food and wine. It goes together, and it's so great that, that the philosophy here is like, you know what, these wines are made, and you can eat with them, and it's going to be awesome. Just a comment. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to. I'd love to hear Stephanie's Stephanie's input there. Just when it comes to like, yeah, what are the considerations from from yourself as a winemaker within this within this realm of this conversation? Right. So I think um, our wine styles really haven't changed over the years. We, we make wines that we'd like to drink, and that goes back to Jack and Dolores and, and Bruce and, and Dennis. And those wines happen to be fruit forward, a fresh acidity, a nice balance of tan and structure. And that goes well with food. So, you know, I think Dolores really ran with that and uh, planted the estate garden, produce garden that's there on the property and became a pioneer in wine and food education culture over the years. So it's always been a, a real part of our our company culture is the food and the wine. Um, and the style hasn't changed. So the way we've made the style has changed a little bit over the years with advances of research and technology, which we kind of touched on a little bit. 
um, you know, the night harvesting, whole cluster pressing over the years to limit oxidation and prolong aging. Then the berry sorting and reds, that getting a shaker table was the coolest thing ever that we could sort berries and, and take out anything that we didn't like, wouldn't go into the fermenter. And then going to the optical sorter, which even more advanced where a puff of air would uh, push out a, a berry that was maybe not quite the right color or a little bit dehydrated. Whoa. And here we are improving our, our fresh fruit character and our acidity in our wines through technology and without having people bent over a table for hours picking out barrel berries. <laughs> um, out in the vineyard, yeah, we're looking for real fresh fruit, a nice acidity, a ripe dark fruit characters, but not overripe characters. So that mm -hmm. these nice. so there's plenty of acidity that goes with with the wines and uh, to go really well with the food. It's it's interesting the optical sorter that Stephanie was talking about to be able to pull out dehydrated fruit. As we go through climate change, to me, this is this piece of technology is critical to allow the winemaker to hold back, uh, not pick early because of a you know a heat event, but be able to allow it to go through, get your mature fruit, but be able to sort out the uh, dehydrated fruit. And so it's just a tool. You 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 lose volume, but you'll gain it back in quality. And so I think that's, uh, it's as we look at climate changes, because before, you know, you had to go and you couldn't wait or else you end up with raisins. So I think that's kind of one of the things as we look at climate change, this type of technology helps us adapt. So along with that technology, this is Kat, uh, Stephanie, do you feel that with that changing technology, are you also changing the, the way that you make wines as the consumer palette is changing? Not necessarily as the consumer palette is, is changing. Uh, like I said, our wine style really hasn't changed all that much over the years. Uh, we do have changed up some of our fermentation protocols to encourage the wine st style that we like and to improve it and to make our wines uh, more uh, age well, basically. Um, and I have plenty of color. So for instance, in reds, we now can analyze how much uh, color and tannin that we're extracting during a fermentation and can look at those results and kind of change the fermentation protocols to either extract less color and tannin or extract more color and tannin. And so that's really a recent development in the last, I don't know, uh, 10 years. Hmm. I also love that you're so excited for the shaker. Is that what you called it? <laughs> when it rolled in, you're like, there it is, guys. I'm like, this yeah. is about to change the game. Yeah. <laughs> True, though. Um, yeah, we're so just excited are... about everything else that comes out. <laughs> That's awesome. You guys are clearly always evolving from a sustainability and obviously a technological standpoint as well. So I was just wondering what we can expect to see next from you guys from cake bread? It, one of my um, uh, passion projects um, uh, during this pandemic is uh, understanding more about vermicompost or you know, using worms uh, uh, and then vermicompost tea. And that uh, in terms of the impact to soil microbes. And so been looking at that uh, as um, um, growing worms and so <laughs> I'm lear learning a lot and then also uh, hobbies during the yeah it's, 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 
I tried butter making too, homemade butter. And so, I, how'd that work out? You know, some were good and some kind of like, okay, you know, but what's good about butter, you kind of like, okay, you just kind of scrape it off and start over again. So, <laughs> with worms though. Yeah, worms, uh, um, actually, kind of, I feel like, I'm not sure if you guys remember the um, movie Ben, the guy who liked all the rats, you know? Oh, I yeah. Think there was a, yeah, 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 that guy was a Michael Jackson song. <laughs> oh, I'm okay. dating myself, but anyway, yeah. that's why I kind of um, attached to my worms here, and uh, <laughs> I uh, I've been planting uh, lettuce during the winter, so we can do good salads and always put a little bit of my vermicompost uh, in the bottom of the hole when I plant new lettuce and uh, we're rocking. So can we do this with vineyards too? And the other, this sounds really weird and uh, my wife's not all that keen on it, but uh, trying to look at using cardboard uh, as weed controls, kind of a no-till. It's that concept came from like no-tilling. It looks terrible. I mean, it looks like you have a bunch of cardboard boxes out your video. So you have to work on that. But uh, we we just done two short rows. And so as we come to the spring, you know, I want to pull it up. But I've been peeking underneath there. So we have a lot of just the worms have come up. And it turns out worms like cardboard. What? It's kind of a carbon source for them. And so um, it's pretty cool to see if we can improve the soil microbes underneath the vine because that's always a hard place to get to uh, you know in a vineyard and so can we do that and so now i have to work on the the look so to speak because it's 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 not very pretty uh, but <laughs> on this um, yeah so it's anyway it's kind of you know if you have a pandemic you know let's make lemonade out of it so those are kind of the uh, couple things been working on wow that's incredible very cool. I don't know what I was expecting when I asked that question, but I wasn't expecting <laughs> to hear worms. Cardboard, <laughs> cardboard, butter, and worms. I think it's, a, it's great. Yeah. Well, thank you guys both uh, for joining us today on the podcast. It was such a pleasure having you guys and learning more about cake bread. So um, we'll look forward to having you back sometime and maybe get drinks in person when this COVID stuff is all over. We'll yeah. bring you some uh, compost tea. I'll yes, bring, I'll bring thank the you. Bring the <laughs> <laughs> and the worms. And the no, we want, we we want the worms, Tim. <laughs> I'm going to start reading about worms. I'm, gonna start about worms. I'm, I'm not sure who I, who I want to give up. I, all of them are names. So I knew. Sure. Oh, oh, gosh. I was going to be the one to ask that. Have you named any of the worms? I was actually going to ask that question. I'm like, you know, should I ask if he's named worms? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Great. Thanks. Take care. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of EOD Drinks. If you've enjoyed this program, please leave us a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps other people discover the show. And tell your friends. We want as many people as possible listening to this amazing program. And now for the credits. End of Day Drinks is recorded live in New York City at Vine Pairs headquarters. And it is produced, edited, and engineered by Vine Pairs station director, yes, he wears a lot of hats, Keith Beavers. I also want to give a special thanks to Vine Pairs co-founder, Josh Mallon, to the executive editor, Joanna Schiarino, to our senior editor, Kat Walensky, our senior staff writer, Tim McCurdy, and our associate editor, Katie Brown. And a special shout out to Danielle Greenberg, Vine Pairs art director, who designed the sick logo for this program. The music for End of Day Drinks was produced, written, and recorded by Darby Seaside. 
I'm VinePair co-founder Adam Teeter, and we'll see you next week. Thanks a lot.